Thank you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And again, our passage is Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Check, check. There I am. Um, we got a bare bones crew this morning. I feel like we could almost like just do Bible study. We could break up into groups and, and talk. This is right on the verge of trying something different this morning, but um, glad you're all here. And uh, as most of you know, um, we've been going through a series all year long on encounters with Jesus, these encounters that Jesus had with individuals throughout the Gospels, learning about who he is and what he's all about, and how, what it means to follow him. How, do we, how can we walk in, in his footsteps? And today we look at, uh, I think for many of us uh, who grew up in the church, is a, a very beloved story. And um, I was going to have Anne sing the song that many of us know about the wee little man. And she still can if you want. So we could take a, a poll right now. I think, this, I think your, people, your people want you, Annie. People want you. Um, but it's interesting, I grew up in the church and, and uh, loved this story for many years, and it's interesting, actually, I've never actually taught this passage before, so it's interesting to see it through adult eyes, and of course, you see it a little differently uh, than when you're a child, and uh, there's so many things that we could tease out here, but the two things that really struck me that I want to talk about is, uh, first, the statement that Jesus makes at the end of this, the Son of Man came to seek and save uh, the lost, and I'm, I'm struck by Jesus' heart for the lost in, in all the various forms that lostness can take, and I want to talk about that. Uh, and then I'm struck by Zacchaeus, and he's this beautiful example of repentance, and this really corrupt man is a model for us today of what repentance looks like. So those are the two things I, I want to talk about this morning. And uh, so a little context, you know, this is, this is uh, right at the height of Jesus' ministry. He is on his way to, uh, to Jerusalem for his final week. So later on in this chapter, he will, will, they'll have Palm Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So he's at an all-time high uh, in his ministry. Obviously, people are lining the streets to, to see him. And among those in the crowd is this man that we're introduced to in verse 2. And I just want to talk about this guy for a couple minutes. Uh, his name is Zacchaeus, and that's a good Jewish name. So he's a, he's a Jewish man. That, that the name Zacchaeus actually means, in Hebrew, means pure or clean, uh, which is an ironic name for this guy because uh, he's anything but that. Uh, we find out in verse 2 that he was a chief tax collector. 
And if you don't know what that means in the first century, let me just tell you. Uh, in first century Israel, uh, Israel was an occupied territory, essentially. You had Jews living in their own land, but they were occupied by the Romans, the big Roman you know, empire that we all know of. And uh, every Jew, uh, the backdrop of every Jewish person's life was the reality of Roman occupation. It was, it was a great burden that every Jewish person lived with. We are not free in our own, in our own land. And among other things, of course, uh, Rome taxed the Israelites hev- heavily. And rather than doing that through Roman officials, they actually chose local Jewish uh, people who were tax collectors. And the local Jewish people would collect taxes from their own people. So these were Jews who had pledged their allegiance to Rome occupationally. Uh, And of course, as they charged, as they collected taxes, they charged a nice commission and skimmed some off the top. So they made a lot of money in taking money from their own people. So you'll notice in verse 3, it also says that Zacchaeus was was wealthy. Uh, So this guy has uh, nice clothes. He's got a nice house, probably the nicest house in the neighborhood. He's got the nicest car in the neighborhood. And um, you're paying attention. That's good. Um, uh, So tax collectors, you got to just feel this. They They were Jews who were traitors to their own people. Right? And they were part of this system of oppression that was the Roman government. The only thing worse for a Jewish person than a Roman was a tax collector, right? a traitor, a loyal to Rome. And the only thing worse than a tax collector was a chief tax collector, right? someone who had climbed the ranks and was at the top of this, this corrupt uh, and shameful trade. And that is Zacchaeus. And so I want you to try to see the story today through Zacchaeus' eyes. We don't, we don't know his background. We don't know what led him to choose this trade. But you can imagine uh, you have wealth, you have uh, success, but beneath that, undoubtedly, behind the wealth, behind the, the occupational success, you have uh, a life of shame. You know, at some point he... He decided to get into this, and now that's been normalized. But he is ashamed of himself. He, any self-respecting Jew would be ashamed of themselves. I'm sure he has a lonely life. He has a fairly isolated life in the town that he lives in. And, um, and some, I imagine some self-hatred. He, he knows that he's unworthy to be called a Jew. He's unworthy to be called a son of Abraham. And so you imagine he's in this crowd, right? He's... he's He's in Jericho. He's among people that he has personally ripped off, most likely. These are people who uh, fear him and despise him. Okay? These are people that turn when they see him coming. He, he, for them, he literally represents everything that's wrong with the world. And he is, to use Jesus' word at the end of this passage, he is lost. Right? The Son of Man came to seek and save the world. This is a lost man. And, and as I think about his lostness this week, what really struck me, and I said this like a month ago, I'm aware that, that lostness can take so many different forms in this world. And um, I've said this before, poverty can take many different forms. Okay, and when you think of this man, um, there's a poverty to him. He's materially rich. He's relationally very poor. 
He's spiritually, he's morally very poor. And I say that because I was thinking this, this week, <laughs> there are certain forms of lostness and poverty that elicit our compassion more than other forms of lostness and poverty, right? I mean, there's some that are kind of endearing, that our heart goes out to certain kinds of people. Like if you look at the passage just before this, look at um, beginning in verse 35 of chapter 18, there's a story of a blind man who is begging Jesus to receive his sight, and Jesus gives him his sight. Okay, that man, there's a poverty there, and that's the kind of poverty that elicits all of our compassion. Our heart goes out to that guy. Not so much with Zacchaeus' form of lostness. Um, Just last week, I was was listening to this podcast I listen to all the time, and they, they just happened to be talking about the Enron scandal which is like now 20 years ago. Can you believe that was 20 years ago that that happened? But the story of this very successful company uh, that was turned out pretty corrupt, and you had these, these high-up executives that were scamming and were misleading and deceitful and very corrupt. And these were men who were lost. But that's not a kind of lostness that elicits our compassion, right? We, we wanted them to get caught and to suffer the consequences of that. And that's the kind of lostness that Zacchaeus Represented. That's how people would have felt uh, about him. And, and again, I say all that because I think um, lostness, poverty takes so many different forms in the world, but we live in Orange County. And so for most of us, the people that we're going to see that are lost look more like Zacchaeus than they do like the blind beggar. Right? Most of us are not encountering the blind beggar, but we encounter Zacchaeuses all the time. And so we need to see Jesus' heart for the lost in all of its forms because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, even the Zacchaeus kind of lostness. And there's one thing that Zacchaeus does have going for himself, and you see it, look at verse 3. Here's the one thing he has going for him. He wanted to see who Jesus was. This corrupt lost man. He's curious. He wants to see Jesus, and he's short. He can't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Okay, now I don't know how unusual it would be for a very wealthy man in the first century to actually take it on himself to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. We wouldn't see that today, but clearly there's a, there's a deep desire to see Jesus, and he's willing to do something that, at least in our culture, would be considered a little unbecoming of a wealthy, respectable person, but he's willing to do whatever it takes to see Jesus, and so that's what he has going for him. So enter Jesus into this scene. I love this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost in all of its forms, and its ugly, ugly forms, and its endearing forms, and I want you to try to now see this scene through Jesus' eyes, Okay. So he's coming into Jericho, uh, and it says he's passing through. Uh, it says there's a crowd. I, I was reading, this almost feels like a parade, right? Like there's, they are lined up to, to see Jesus. And um, so many people, and imagine Jesus with that heart to, to seek and save people who need him. And imagine what, I was thinking this week, what his life was like to be, you know, to enter into a town like this with a sea of people there, and to be seeing these faces with a heart for people, knowing that each one of these faces represents a story and represents hopes and dreams and anxieties 
and burdens and this, this deep compassion for people. And this, I think this spirit-filled kind of dependent conversation with his heavenly father, with God, constantly going, Father, where do you want me to move in this moment? Who do you want me to see, right? Who do you want me to notice? There's a sea of people. And somehow Jesus, in this moment, discerns, he sees a man <laughs> in a tree. And he's walking by, and he says, yes, this man, I want to engage this man. And obviously he has some divine knowledge. And so he calls out Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, calls him by name, which must have been shocking, can you imagine, right? It was hundreds of people, and this famous rabbi calls you out by name. I want to come to your house today. I want to eat and sit and be at your home today. In a first century Eastern culture, okay, to, to have table fellowship with each other is a sign of intimacy and acceptance. So for Jesus to say, I want to come, of all these people, I'm coming to your house is a way of Jesus saying, I see you and I accept you. I want to be in fellowship with you. Okay, that's what, that's what any first century person would hear in that. And so you look at Zacchaeus, verse 6, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Like he, he sees, he, Zacchaeus understands what Jesus is saying, and he's thrilled. He's just won the lottery, right? This famous rabbi of all these people in this crowd see him and actually wants to come to his home to eat with him and to be with him. I love verse, verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, right? There's not a person in the crowd that is stoked about this, right? Like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Like, all the people. This guy's such a tool. This guy's such like a, I mean, this, he's again, there's nothing endearing about this man, right? Like, no, not, not there. And, and so Jesus has just created a, a very awkward social moment. And the more we go through this, this series, I've been feeling like if I had been following Jesus, I would have been so uncomfortable all the time. Like he is, he is breaking um, all sorts of just ways of being in the world that, that would create so much discomfort for me. I, I don't know if I could handle it, honestly. But Jesus has created such an awkward moral and social moment. And, um, and he just does it. And, and what I'm just, as I look at Jesus today in this passage, I'm struck and, you know, we're called to follow in his way. Right? We, are, we are to follow after him, to, to be in this world in, in ways that are similar to the way he was in the world. And so I was thinking this week, what would it look like for us to move through this world with his heart, right? To seek and save the lost, to be paying attention to people around us with a, with a a heart for, Lord, who, who do you want me to engage today? How can I see and notice and move towards the people that you might want me to be moving towards, right? People who need to be seen, who need to be spoken to, who need to be loved, who need to be listened to. Do I have what I'll call the spiritual receptivity um, in the moment, like Jesus does in a big crowd, to be paying attention enough to go, Father, what are, you, what are you moving me towards? And I was thinking, for Jesus, um, sometimes Jesus would proactively move towards somebody, like he does here, right? He, he just moves towards Zacchaeus. He initiates that. He's, he's moved to do that. Other times, 
he's responding, right? Someone, he's going on his way like the blind beggar, and he's interrupted um, by somebody, and then he has the wherewithal to, to minister to the interruption. But what I think of it, in either case, Jesus had this profound, what I'd call this ministry of availability, right? available to the Father and available to the people around him to, to love and to serve. And what would it look like for us to engage in that kind of life? And you might hear this and you're like, yeah, well, Jesus was God. You know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a head start there. Um, right? He knew, like, he had divine knowledge of Zacchaeus' name. But what's interesting, if you read Luke's gospel, Luke does not focus on the divinity of Jesus. Um, Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is able to do the things he can, not because he's God, though he is God. He's able to do the things he does because he is a man filled with the Spirit. If you read it again and again, he's a, he's a man who is, is filled with the Spirit, fully surrendered to God and listening prayerfully paying attention, and then is moved in moments to reach out to people. And so theoretically, that kind of life is available to us because he has now sent his spirit into our lives. And so I want to just, before we look at the the beautiful repentance of Zacchaeus, I want to just pause. And I was struck by this. Do, Do we have an imagination for what our lives can look like of, of this prayerful, paying attention, noticing what's going on around us, available, a ministry of availability? Do we have, we have an imagination for what our days, what it could look like to live a day like that and then string a day onto another day onto another day? What would it look like to move into our, our work with that kind of openness? Um, what does it look like to move into this space um, and be present to one another or to be in our, in our neighborhood? or to be at our favorite coffee shop, or our favorite restaurant, or our kids, or our grandkids' uh, sporting games, with that kind of ministry of availability, of, of openness, to what God would want to do through us in the people around us. I mean, the minute this service ends, you're going to have about 100 opportunities in this room to be, to be present to one another, to love, and to pay attention, and to, lo- you know, to listen, to care. And so I, I want you just to, I just want to pause and have you ask yourself, like, do I have an imagination for what that could be in my life? And, uh, and what, are the, what are the main barriers that would keep me from that kind of life? Uh, and if you're like me, the barriers are either going to be in the area of, like, ambition and agenda and selfishness. I've, I've got a day that I've got planned out. Uh, that's a big barrier. Or the other barrier is, is fear. Is um, I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to get through life myself. I'm a little afraid to, to be moving out towards other people. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'd actually like just to pause for a second because there's only a couple of us here so I can do whatever I want today. Um, um, I want to just pause and pray. Can I just, I just want to pray for us on this and then, we're gonna, and then I want to look at Zacchaeus' ex- example of repentance. So let me, let me just pray for us on this in this. I invite you just to, to offer yourself to the Lord. So Lord Jesus, you had such a heart for people. You saw lostness in all of its forms, the, the endearing and the not so endearing forms. Lord, would you give us your, your heart? Would you give us eyes to see the opportunities and the people around us every day? Would your spirit 
make us unhurried. Lord, we're so restless so often. Unhurry us that we might pay attention to the moments with our children, with our spouses, with our friends, with our roommates, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, with our enemies. Make us aware of those moments and give us a heart of compassion and desire to love and serve. Lord Jesus, we need your spirit. Would you pour out our, your spirit in fresh ways for that simple, beautiful, mundane, but profound ministry? Amen. Okay. Lastly, I just want to, I want to look at this beautiful picture of repentance that we see in Zacchaeus. Um, take a look at the passage if you have your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to suggest there's a scene change between verse 7 and verse 8. Okay, so in verse 7 it says, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So I take verse 8 through 10 to be taking place in the home of uh, Zacchaeus. You know, it's so interesting. I think I've shared this before. This is kind of an aside. But these, these gospel stories, these are such condensed stories. You ever thought about, like, we're getting just a, a bare-bones summary of what actually took place. Like, we, we looked at the story of Jesus and, and Nicodemus at night, right? And we get, like, 15 verses, 16 verses of their conversation. And I guarantee you that, that conversation was a three-hour conversation, Right? And John was, was giving us the salient, essential points of what we need to know. And, and undoubtedly, this is, that's what's happening here. Okay? Jesus spent probably a couple hours at Zacchaeus' home, and I would love to know what, how Jesus engaged him. I want what that conversation was. Did, did Jesus keep it just kind of light and, and, and I don't know, fun? Uh, did he talk about the kingdom of God? I'm sure he probably did. That was his favorite topic. Or did he call Zacchaeus out? Did he like go after Zacchaeus' stuff? We have no idea. Any of those things are possible. Um, what's clear to me based off of Zacchaeus' response is that the truth and the grace of Jesus invaded this man's home, invaded this man's heart and his mind. And he has this beautiful response. Let me read verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up, I think he's standing up from his table right at home, and said to the Lord, Lord, uh, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Okay, this beautiful response. And I think what's so clear is he felt seen and noticed and loved by Jesus. And it's like that, that love, that, that acceptance just in this case, just kind of won over his heart. I mean, he hadn't, he hadn't had anybody treat him like that probably for years. And, and the love and acceptance of Jesus just won over his heart as this spontaneous expression of repentance. And I was thinking about Romans 2 where it says, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And I think this was a moment where, where just the kindness of Jesus led this man to change his life. And I'm sure also, not just his kindness, but I, I, I guarantee you, Jesus talked about the kingdom. And Jesus, the sum, summary of Jesus' message in Luke's gospel is this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught God's kingdom is, is present. God's love and acceptance and salvation and truth is now available to you. 
And what you need to do to accept that is repent and believe the good news. And that word repent literally means to change your mind. And so Jesus came and said, there's something here in my ministry that is available to you, but to accept it, you have to, you have to rethink your life. You have to think differently about how you're living your life and about what life is all about. And not just change your mind, but you need to change your life. You need to change your actions and behavior. You need to turn from a worldly life and you need to turn towards God and his kingdom. And undoubtedly, Zacchaeus heard that message and he realized simply, I have been living a certain way. It is not the way I'm supposed to live. I need to turn from that, and I need to turn to God and his ways. Two specific things Zacchaeus needed to do. One, he realized, I am way too wealthy. I have way more money than I need. I have been selfish. I have been greedy, and I need to solve that. And so he says, I'm going to solve that. I'm going to give half of everything I own away to the poor. People I've never even met, but I have way more than I need, and I need to change that. And so I'm going to give half of it away. Jesus doesn't necessarily ask him to do this. Right? It's not mandatory. But he sees it and he does it. The other thing he did was this. I have cheated so many people. I need to remedy that. And so he says, if there's been anybody that I've cheated, I will go back to them and I will pay them back four times whatever I took from them. Okay, can you imagine the conversations that he had in the next couple months? Right? Like, I mean, he's doing like, this is like 12-step. I mean, he's go, like, he's going after it. Right? Like, but imagine, you know, Zacchaeus shows up at your door and you lock, the, you know, you bolt the lock, all that, and have this corrupt man say, I am so sorry. Like, I was wrong. I cheated you. And, and I want to pay you back four times what I did. I mean, imagine the stories that came out. Imagine the witness of this man, what his repentance did for that whole town, for the people he encountered. But this, this corrupt man is a beautiful picture of repentance. He doesn't rationalize or justify or theologize his stuff, and he doesn't wallow in it. He just, in a straightforward way, says, this needs to be made right, and I'm going to make it right. And that's what repentance does. It doesn't rationalize, it doesn't justify, it doesn't theologize, and it doesn't wallow. It just turns away from a certain thing, and it turns to God. I was reminded, Zacchaeus' is straightforward repentance, I was reminded of a guy who was in my Axios group about five or six years ago, and Axios is our men's ministry, our small group men's ministry. And, um, and he came into our group for the first time, and he was new to the faith, a new Christian, and so in Axios, we read, uh, you know, uh, scripture, we talk about it, and then oftentimes there's a, what we call a praxis element, where you're trying to implement, like put it into practice. And this new believer had the strange idea that you're supposed to read the Bible and then put it into practice. And so we would do these, prax, these praxi, and um, one would be like, hey, it, it would be on like um, confession or on like relational um, fractures. And what, what should you do about this? So he read this passage, like, oh, I think I need to have a conversation with my dad, and I need to apologize to my dad for some of the things that happened in our, in our youth. So, so he did. So he called up his dad and, and had this, like, reconciling conversation. Or there's another one we were talking about, generosity. And he felt like, oh, I've got this car that 
is getting old anyways. I want to I give it away. Uh, and he gave it away for like, like a fourth of the price to this person who needed it. And he just like, oh, the Bible is telling me to do this, and I'm feeling that, and I'm, I'm going to go do that. And he was experiencing repentance. And meanwhile, you had the rest of us in this group that have been in the church for years, and we've got a lifetime of like rationalizing and theologizing our way out of sin that we live with. And I wanted to kind of pull him aside and say, let, let, me, let, me, let me talk through how mature Christians go about theologizing their way through their sinful behavior. And it was really actually very profound to me. And I was moved by his straightforward repentance. And we can lose that when we've been, some of us who've been at this journey uh, for a while. And what I love about this story is Jesus is moved by this man's repentance. Look at verse 9. Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And I imagine that, that really hit that man to hear Jesus call him, you are a son of Abraham. He did not feel worthy to be a son of Abraham. And to hear Jesus say, you, you, are, you are a son of Abraham. But Jesus' joy, salvation has come to your house. It's, it's, it's Jesus seeing his repentance that leads him to realize salvation has come. Clearly, the grace of God is at work in this man's heart and his life, and I can see it because he's turning, and he's turning to the kingdom. This man has entered the kingdom. Salvation has come to this man. And I want to talk, I want to end on repentance. And what I want you to see in this moment is, is Jesus' joy in this man's repentance. And I'm going to make a statement right now that might, I, I don't think it's overstated, um, I can't think of anything that God loves more than repentance. Or I could say one of the things God loves most of all is repentance. It's when his children come to terms with their brokenness and sin. And there's a moment where they turn from that and they turn towards him and cry out. He loves that. He doesn't just kind of like it. It's one of the things that brings him his greatest joy. Jesus' most famous parable of all is about the joy that God has when his children repent. It's actually three parables he tells. He tells the story of a, of a lost sheep, right? And uh, there's a lost sheep and the, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. And when he finds that one, Jesus says, there is, he throws a party. The shepherd throws a party with his friends. And Jesus says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then he goes on to tell a story about a woman who has 10 valuable coins and she loses one and she sweeps through the house and she finds it and she throws a party. And Jesus says the same thing. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, the 99 who don't need to repent. And then he tells the story of a father who had two sons, right? And his youngest son abandoned him, was a traitor to his dad, left and lost his life uh, through wild living, and then has this moment of repentance and realizes, oh my gosh, I want to be back in my father's house. And he turns back to his father's house. And when he returns home, his father, like the other two stories, throws a party, and so Jesus is saying, when you, God's children, repent, God throws a party. God loves repentance. 
And we need to hear that um, because when we're needing to repent, uh, it can be hard, right? Repentance is hard either because we don't want to give up the thing that we're, we're wanting to hold on to something, obviously, otherwise we would have repented from it. Or when we're in it, God doesn't feel like a very loving person to us, right? We're thinking, well, God is judging this thing that I'm doing, and it's never fun to move towards judgment, right? And so we imagine him this sort of judging person. And what I love is, is Jesus is reminding us, hey, sometimes, sometimes God will put his hand of conviction upon our lives. Like when we're doing something we shouldn't do and we're God's, he, he puts his hand of conviction and it hurts. It's heavy. It's not fun. But he's only doing that because he loves us, because he's wanting to, that emotion to, to wake us up, to turn back to him. And the moment we turn to him in repentance, the very moment he is like, <laughs> he is like a first century patriarch who loses all his dignity and tucks up his whatever you wear back then and runs out to his child and throws his arms around him and smothers him with kisses and welcomes him back into the family. This is who God is the moment we turn to him. He is waiting with open arms. Ah, my son, my daughter, welcome home. And so here's a, this corrupt guy who models the thing that Jesus and his father love most. He has become Zacchaeus again, pure and clean through coming home to the kingdom of his father. And so I want to just invite you to close this out by, is there somewhere where you need to repent? It could be big stuff. It could feel like small stuff. But is there a place where you are going in a way that you know God doesn't want you to go? Uh, is there something that you know you need to change and you're stalling on it? You, you want to you wanna just kind of slow play it. Um, sometimes we need to make a clean break and we need to just say, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a change. And um, this is an opportunity to do that. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're going to celebrate communion right now. And these tables represent... <laughs> in physical form, what Jesus says in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He has this heart for the broken, and he uh, is willing to do just about anything to find that one lost sheep. And this cup represents his blood that was poured out for us. These crackers represent his body. It's him saying, I, I, will, give my, I will pour myself out for you to seek you out and to save you. And so I, I want you to consider communion this morning, coming to these tables as an opportunity to go, wh where do I need to repent? Where is there lust or greed or pride or laziness or selfishness or any other sin that I know is not what God has for me? How can coming to these tables be a, a way to repent. And, and for some of you, what repentance needs to look like is, is what I just said, like, I just need to change. Like, today's the day. No more stalling. Uh, no more putting this off. Um, I need to change. I, need, I know that this area is not what you want, God, and you are calling me today to do this, 
to not justify it, to not rationalize it, not theologize it, but to just turn to you and change. And this is the day to do that. And for some of you, you might have something in your life where like, I can't change it. If I could change it, I would have changed it. And so if that's the case, this is a day to say that to the Lord. Lord, I want to change this. And my repentance, my confession is, I can't. I don't have the power to change this. And so I'm going to come here poor of spirit, saying to you, I don't have the resources within myself to change this thing in my life. And I'm asking you to do for me what I can't do for myself. And this is a, that's a beautiful way to come to the table. We all come to the table as poor. And Jesus, in his wealth, he pours out. He, he, God made him who was rich, right? He was, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that through, through his poverty, we might become rich. So receive out of your poverty the riches of Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll come and, and we'll come to the tables. Well, Lord Jesus, I, it's so beautiful that very broken people like Zacchaeus can model things that just bring your heart joy. Thank you that you love us, that you see us, that you call each one of us by name like Zacchaeus, and that you long to dine with us, to be in intimate, close friendship with us. Lord, may your spirit bring conviction. May your spirit bring help where we are weak, where we're broken, where we're actually running away from you. Lord, turn us back. Bring us home in big ways, in small ways. And may we experience fellowship with you at these tables. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.